0: This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Daniel Rojas is an award-winning composer specialising in the rich and vibrant Latin American aesthetic, as well as an acclaimed pianist specialising in Latin and tango music, not to mention stunning improvisations at the keyboard. Limelight Australia has said he's a master of his craft, both as a pianist and composer, and the Sydney Arts Guide has called his performances energetic and emphatic and joyously explosive. He's bringing that energy once again to the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra on October 14 and 15, as he teams up with fellow pianist Yeram Lee to premiere his passionate new work, Romanza y Danza de los Muertos, which, if my Spanish is not completely useless, sounds like it might be quite dark. So I'm glad Daniel is joining me now. Daniel Rojas, thank you for taking the time to be in conversation with me today.
0: G'day, Simon. Hello, everybody. Great to be here.
1: Now, that that translates as Romance and Dance of the Dead, is that right? That's
0: correct. Absolutely. (laughs) Romance and Dance of the Dead. Romanza y Danza de los Muertos. And it's dark, but it's also fun. Uh, ah. Yeah, it's it's a 15, 16 minute work for piano, four hands, right? So yeah. one piano and four hands. That's why I'm teaming up with the wonderful Yaram Lee and, uh, and Symphony Orchestra with a good solid percussion section and a big luscious string and brass and wind sections as well.
1: Fantastic. So, why did you want to write something on that theme?
0: Well, I got commissioned to write a piece for uh, the Halloween program this year for the Willoughby Symphony uh, in October. Nah. So it's on the 14th and 15th, which is approximately... <laughs> slightly. I was saying it's, gonna, it's approximating Halloween. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, okay, what am I going to write? So I looked at the rest of the program and there's a bit of Wagner and a bit of other music that kind of speaks about ghosts and villains and what happens before and after death, right? So I thought, oh, okay, yes, I'm Latin American and I love my uh, magical realism, mm. right? And magical realism, I mean, it's a, quite a topic. But one of the things I love about it is that it seems to kind of give you a space into the magical aspect of day-to-day life, right? And so we feel these emotions. We see these kind of mental, emotional gestures in our day-to-day life. And I thought, maybe I could put a little bit of that into this piece. So I thought, okay, what if Romeo and Juliet, Senko and the Flying Dutchman, Tristan and Isolde, or choose your favorite romantic couple who never really made it past, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Tragic end, yeah. That's right. (laughs) And they meet in the afterlife. Uh. And they see each other. They're gripped by each other's presence, their souls, their spirit. And they move together and they start to romance and dance for eternity and eternity and eternity. It's unabated completely free of any encumbrance. There's no physical realm they need to worry about now.
1: Yes, it's not not a love story for life, a life story for the rest of eternity. For eternity. There you go.
0: (laughs) So it's wild. It's a passionate, wild, crazy piece. Jessica Wells, I was showing it to her before, I did the the parts just a few weeks ago, and she loved it. She was like, this is so twisted. And I go, yes, you got it. It's twisted and fun. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah,
1: cool. You said one <clears throat> piano, four hands, rather than two pianos, Correct. four hands. That must provide, I mean, do, when you compose it, do you suddenly go, oh, God, I can't go too low there, otherwise we're going to run into each other.
0: Well, uh, yes, that's (laughs) right. You really have to think about the the logistics and uh, and also choreography, right? So it's, you know, sometimes the hands do cross each other, Uh, right? I think it's really quite a powerful gesture. And you really have to be able to work very collaboratively with your associate pianist, right, Mm. your your associate artist. And um, so, yes, we have to be very mindful of not kind of, you know, slapping each other's hands or pushing each other off the chair. (laughs) right? But, yes, it does require some choreography and some discussion, which is what we've been doing in our rehearsals.
1: Well, we can't hear a recording of this piece yet because, of course, it is yet to be premiered by yourselves and the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra on the 14th and 15th of October. But we can hear... Uh, something else that you've written. And, well, Daniel, this is the first of a fantastic selection of music you got for us today. It's all so groovy, and I'm worried I'm far too uncool to be allowed to listen to it. Uh, but can you tell us about this first one, Sal Tango?
0: Matt, you are so cool, of course. And it's, it's written for everybody, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what I like to do is blend Latin American genres together. So in this case, you've got salsa and tango being brought together. Uh, and, of course, it, it's also one of the pieces that has influenced the larger piece that I've written that will be premiered in October.
1: Sal Tango, performed by the Baldini Quartet with pianist Daniel Rojas, who is also the composer, and well, Daniel Rojas is also my guest in conversation today. There is a bit of fusion there with the classical, uh, with the piano being involved with the sort of tango. Do you want to try and live in that kind of halfway point, or do you move about?
0: Yeah, I think I'm really about living between classical and Latin American music.
1: Because you define them as different things, classical Uh, to Latin American?
0: um... Um... In some ways I do, in some ways I don't. I think music is music, just mm. on a general, from a general perspective, but I also think there are some quite distinct markers that can be easily recognisable in in various forms of Latin American music. And of course, when I say Latin American music, I mean it as an umbrella term for. Yeah hundreds of genres within Latin America. You know, there really are like, various popular, folk, indigenous, classical, etc. forms of Latin American music. So yes, I'm, I'm really about living in the space of, okay, so what happens if I blend this aesthetic or this uh, genre with this other one? See what comes out of that. Let's just experiment with it. It means, of course, that I need to do a lot more learning and digging and listening to various genres, but it's a lot of fun and it gives me a lot of food for inspiration,
1: Mm. You are Australian, but you were born in Chile. Your family moved here when you were quite young. Do you remember anything from those early years?
0: Oh, that's a good question. First of all, can I clarify that I was made in Peru, ah, where my parents met. Right. Dad's Chilean, mum's Peruvian. I was assembled in Chile, so ah. I was born there in, in Santiago, <laughs> <laughs> and exported to Australia. And
1: exported. <laughs> to,
0: to Melbourne <laughs> when I was six years old. So... I don't remember very much about Chile at all from those times. And as much as I love Chile as a country, I don't feel so, say, close to the country. I feel closer to where my mother's from, from to Peru. Mm. right? So she's from the northeast, which is the jungle region, which is a very interesting kind of ethnic situation because there's a lot of indigenous, African, and also European presence there. Mm. It's going up towards the... The borders with Colombia and uh, with Brazil. Okay, so it's quite north, and it's stinking hot up there, and I love it. So when I go to places like Cairns, I feel at home because that's what it's like over there, and that's a cool day. (laughs) Even, please forgive my voice. Yes, what happened? What tell us about this husky voice? What what, this? uh, (laughs) You don't.
1: I mean, you you always sound pretty good, but uh, you sound sort of a bit more rich and sexy. (laughs) What's what's the story behind that? Oh,
0: too kind. Oh, so what happened is just a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Wintham Marcellus. Concert with the Lincoln uh, Jazz Orchestra. Of course, I love my big band jazz and you're music. Still suffering. And I was, <laughs> I was like a teenager at a rock concert. I was just screaming with my mates, and you know, in one of the boxes there. Yeah. If, if you heard us above the rest of the of the audience, it was us. You know, we were just going <laughs> crazy. So I lost my voice the next day. Oh no! Three or four days later, as it was sort of coming back, I went out with some other mates. And uh, oh, I lost it again because we laughed and you know had too much conversation. Mm-hmm. So I lost it about three times, and I think I'm <laughs> beginning to regain it now.
1: <laughs> Sh- showing your age. <laughs> but tell me, tell me about what brings the family to Australia.
0: So my dad got a job in Melbourne, okay, with the Spanish community down there. And of course, given that Chile was in rather financial dire straits at the time, this is the 80s. Dad took it mm. and thought, okay, well, let's create a future for the family. And, uh, and it was a little scary as well because his job over there, they, were, they found out somehow that we were moving and so we just gave, giving him an ultimatum and the visas and the tickets hadn't come through just yet. And so wow. they were pressuring him. When are you going? to you know Are you going? Are you staying? Are you going? Are you staying? So dad had to play it really, really cool. I think I spilled the beans actually to uh-huh. dad's bosses because I was so excited that my parents should have told the six-year-old that, you know, oh, we might be going
1: to Australia. Australia. <laughs> but what did your parents do? Dude. Were they in music at all?
0: My mother, yes, my mother's incredibly musical. Her whole family for generations have all been incredible, incredibly musical. I have cousins who are composers and concert pianists living in Europe and Latin America, okay, in Spain particularly, and in South America. Dad's side, not so much. You know, I think they're more kind of photographers and that sort of thing, right? My generation and younger, they tend to become more musicians. But the older generations, you know, like what, surgeons and so forth. You know, that's what they're supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember when you started learning music? I do. I picked it up on my own. Uh, At first, I was about four or five years old.
1: So even when you were still in Chile?
0: Yes, Mm. absolutely. Somehow an old battered piano landed in our house. Right In in Chile I remember it quite vividly actually It's probably one of my few memories That I have Of Chile Of that age Of that time And um I just started plonking away and I felt, oh, wow, if I press this key down, you have a sound. and If I press this other one, I have a sound. So for me, that was just mind-blowing. So I started experimenting with clusters and, you know, as little kids do, right, mm. and just banging and banging and banging. And to my surprise, um, well, to my surprise now, my parents never uh, kind of told me to shut up or to quieten down. They were just all encouraging. So I thought, oh, okay, this is like playing with my toys but better. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's more responsive, right? Uh, so – when we came, well, we couldn't afford lessons at that time. You know, in Chile, it was just a, uh, it was just not an option. But when we moved to Australia, I remembered that uh, this beautiful lady, one of our friends in our community, Mrs. Friedman, she realized how much I loved the instrument. So at six or seven years old, she just said, like, I'll offer you lessons, and we offered to pay her. She said, no, 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 free of charge, this and that. So I thought, wow, that's amazing. So I, I just ate it up, and I loved her. She was such a lovely lady. Like the lessons were supposed to be like 20 thirty minutes rather yeah. and of course we always went over time wow. so I'd ask her all these questions and I wanted to show her this. I came up with this little idea. what do you think And again, she was just really encouraging and so forth, right So how old are
1: you by this point?
0: Do you think about seven right. seven, eight years old and you're
1: basically you're kind of improvising stuff. Oh yes, her. from the onset. Right.
0: I just love making stuff up from the beginning. it was it was just so natural and uh, I didn't think it was anything different. It was the same way that I play with toys. Yeah. Okay. Same way that I grabbed, say, a car, like back in Chile, we didn't even have toys. We had to like pretend toys like blocks of wood or something like that. Yeah. And I pretended they were cars. It was just kind of like in my imagination. And of course, you know, you move the car forward, then to the left, then to the right, and you make sounds like "broom" things like that. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of making stuff up as a kid, right? As as you go, like inventing it or just playing with it, toying with it. The same thing that everybody does when we're doing whatever we do during the day. Except that when I had the chance, I started applying that to piano to music. And I started thinking music in my mind, right? I think, okay, so I did this really cool idea on the piano earlier today and I'm going to bed and I'm dreaming about it. And I'm thinking, oh, that was really cool. What else could I do with it? So I started listening, realizing that I was listening to music in my in my head, right? And then I thought, okay, tomorrow I'm going to try this and this and that. So next day I'd kind of played with it a little bit more. And I just did that for so long as, a, as I was a kid. Yeah. And at some point, might've been about eight or nine years old. I thought, okay, well, I'm learning all this music. Someone's written this stuff down. And I was captivated by Mozart and Bach, several other composers, but that, Beethoven as well. But as a, as a child, they were my, like, big heroes. And I thought, okay, so they wrote this stuff down. Maybe I can write my ideas down too. So, you know, those little spyrex manuscript uh, yeah. book they used to sell in the 80s? I pestered my parents to buy me those for $2.95 or whatever they were. And I just started writing down. And for me, that was just magical.
1: And you, you had enough knowledge to be able to notate – the music?
0: I guess so. I mean, I still have some I, mean, I
1: suppose what I'm saying is, is, is it real <coughs> notation or is it, was it your secret code?
0: Oh, no, no. I was that, looking at scores. I was yeah, looking at, at piano Because you were
1: learning the Mozart in the back and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Were you finding it more challenging to learn or did you, did you feel restricted when you were learning those pieces that had already been composed? Were you kind of playing around with them or did you sort of compartmentalise that between your improvisation and playing established works?
0: That's a very good question. Yes and no. I, kind of distinguished early on because I was listening to the recordings that what is on the score you play, right? But also I thought, okay, well, you know, what if I do this to that piece for myself, mm. right? I didn't necessarily uh, show that to my teachers or, or, um, or to other people necessarily, but it was more about, okay, I'm playing with this, is such good ideas and what else could I do with that? And then that would give me ideas for my own pieces. Like for example, um, do you know the Moonlight Sonata, the yes. first movement? Right in C sharp minor, such a beautiful piece of music. So uh, at some point, I did the same thing but in G major. All right, so I kind of changed the key. I modulated the key to a major key, and also you know a fifth or so above, right? A diminished fifth above, and it was a completely different piece, and I loved it. And instead of keeping the melody of the um, of the Moonlight Sonata, I kept that accompaniment, and I added another melody. All right, Mm. in G major. And that was like the the birth of a new composition. And I can still – I could still play it today if you – you know, if I had a piano here, I'd play it to you because I still remember it was one of my early pieces. And I was, what, eight, nine years old at that time. It's just one of those amazing experiences that sometimes we have access to when we listen to music so intensely. In fact, this is what I used to do. Okay, first of all, I want to say that you can probably tell we didn't have much money when we arrived to Australia. But my parents were very encouraging. They're really good parents, I have to say. And the older I get and the older they get, I realize just how much I treasure them and love them and, um, and honor them, in fact.
1: It's sad that you sometimes don't realize this until quite a bit later. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now
0: it's just how angry for them, you know, for our teenage years, because they were a bit strict and this yeah. and that. And I realize they were just 80% of the time, they were absolutely spot on. 20%, I still think they were. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, the point being that we'd still go to the Sunday morning markets in Melbourne, all right? And of course, uh, George and I, my brother and myself, would go and look at the toys. And then I'd go and look at the, uh, the LPs, the, the L Play records, which you had back then. Uh, the CDs weren't really in circulation at that time, still, right? We're talking mid 80s. You're dating yourself, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> so, and I would just be fascinated when I saw records of Beethoven, of Tchaikovsky, of Stravinsky. Like I was trying to pronounce Stravinsky's name, like, you know, as a kid Stravinsky. Oh, yeah, I know the name, Stravinsky, that's cool, yeah. all right. So I would just beg my dad to buy me these uh, these LPs. And, of course, he's a great negotiator, come and knock the price right down. And they make he would make them cry, basically. <laughs> we're giving this to you, sir, you know, basically. <laughs> uh, and so I'd take them home.
1: And he'd be going, but it's for my boy. <laughs> that's right. That's right,
0: exactly. They were probably trying to get rid of him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they probably only sold the pop CDs, and, the pop albums, rather. So we'd take those home and – I literally would spend hours, like I'd come back from school straight to the stereo system, put the headphones on so I wouldn't disturb others and put a full blast and just listen to record after record. I remember some of the really important ones were uh, the Alfred Cortot recordings of the Chopin. Chopin, now I can't remember if it was the Etudes or... Or the, um, or the Preludes, I really can't remember, it's a, it's a long time ago, but I was just fascinated in, in those sounds. There was another one with like a 10 record uh, set of a whole bunch of classics Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, and they were just absolutely fascinating. So at some point, I started taking lessons in the city at Allen's. So my mum would take us there on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. My brother was doing guitar and I was learning to play violin because I already had a piano teacher, but I took up the violin at that time. And uh, while my brother was having his lessons, I'd go downstairs to the um, print music store of Allen's, right? Mm. Now, I can't remember if it was Collins Street or whatever it was, but it was in Melbourne somewhere in the city. And um, and I would just spend all that time just digging through these things and looking at the scores and just being fascinated by all these notes and how they were laid out and, and all these indications and so forth. So I started looking for the the scores of the recordings that I had at home, and I would ask for them or try to find them. And I realized, gosh, this is a lot more expensive than I thought – Normally, I can buy an, a, a record in the the markets for like five, ten bucks, but here, like a fifteen, twenty dollars. You now, I can't get my dad to buy me that. So, my mum thought of the next best thing: Melbourne City Library.
1: Ah, there <laughs> <Right>? you go.
0: <laughs> and then I had access to all these other resources. So, at some point, I discovered full scores of orchestras, and I go, "Oh, it's, this is as a, uh, as a kid, nine or ten years old, You're yeah. looking at full scores. Oh, that was fascinating. Yes, I would lose myself in those things." Really? I mean, this is where I where I learned a lot of my basic music theory. So when I got into studying music formally at, in high school and also at uni, I had major potholes in my knowledge, but I knew so much just empirically. Mm. Okay, uh, So when I were teaching us about, okay, this is what you do with orchestration, this is how you lay it out, I'm thinking, why are they teaching this to us? This is just so obvious. It's because I'd been looking at it for so long, right? But then I realized, okay, yeah, well, you know, um, not everybody has access to this for kids.
1: Well, some more music now, Daniel. And uh, this one is great Mambo Influenciado. Tell us about this
0: one. Mambo Influenciado. This is. So a- you can always say it better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> I just say it with the accent. By Jesus Chucho Valdez. He's an amazing Cuban pianist, composer, was a jazz artist, jazz. Latin artist, and uh, of course it's written for you know more kind of jazz, traditional jazz, Latin combos. But I decided that I'll do a classical version of this, you know. And so, just as the previous piece, I went to Brazil and recorded this just before COVID in 2019. I recorded this as part of an album called "Bliss of Heaven: Music of the New World," where I worked with the Baldini Quartet there, and these are players from the Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra and you know, other ensembles as well. So it's a terrific quartet, uh, and so in this piece. I experiment with the Latin, the jazz, but also the classical. All right, So you can certainly hear a fair bit of Bach in this piece as well. Uh, see if you can identify what pieces I may be referring to in this case. So a mumbo is like an upbeat sort of Latin, Cuban, clave-based rhythms. And um, in this piece I try to bring that out, but again with a classical tinge to it.
1: From Jesus Chucho Valdez. The Baldini Quartet was joined by my guest in conversation today, pianist Daniel Rojas. And that uh, appears on an album which uh, is a couple of years old now, isn't it? The first track was also on the same album,
0: Daniel? That's right. 2019, Bliss of Heaven, Music of the New World, and it's published by Da Vinci Classics.
1: So when you do go to the university and start studying music there do you find that you do have to you know change some of the way you look the ways you look at things because of the fact you've basically taught it all to yourself before
0: That's a good question. Uh, look, I was pretty lucky. I went to the University of Sydney, right? Where we had a very liberal arts approach to music, okay? So it wasn't necessarily that this is the right way of doing it, this is the wrong way of doing it. In fact, the more wrong ways of doing it is also good. Right? There were some formalities. Did I have trouble with those? Not particularly. I enjoyed learning. I spent a lot of time with university work. I think what I had more issue with at university was writing, right? Um, Because, as in writing. As uh, in writing it down? No, not really. Writing uh, musicology essays, for example. Oh. Right? No, I had never. Prose. um, That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Writing prose. Writing music had become quite natural to me, right? I mean, I still take a bit of time because I like to think a lot about things and so forth. But I think it was more about writing the essays that took a little bit more time for me because, uh, unfortunately, that was never really well taught to me in, in secondary school. And I also got a little bit lazy with, with my English as well. <laughs> so that was a steep learning curve. Uh, but, Although
1: you know, you, you'd been here since you were six, so you probably picked up English practically as a f- almost first language, right?
0: I did. I did, but uh, look, I have a few traumas with my English, right? Because <laughs> uh, Australia wasn't so kind um, uh. back in those times. Oh, we're very kind now, very understanding. But yes, I got well, go back home. You can't even talk properly. You're uh. so dumb, you know, that kind of thing, right? Which was unfortunate because they were also my friends, right? They're just, friends. They were also your friends. Friends in inverted commas. Oh, they were good friends as well. We played sort of football together yeah. and they taught me how to play Aussie Rules or VFL as it was called back then, Victorian Rules Football. Uh, but it's just kids teasing each other. But as a child, I took it personally. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I'd go home crying, oh, mum, they said that I'm dumb, that I can't talk, and this and that. Uh, so, okay, so the, I think the impact of that was that I was a little shy in speaking as a kid. And uh, when I tried to talk, I wouldn't breathe. Okay, so I would just keep talking. Had to keep it, get it all out. <laughs> the whole yeah. time. Absolutely. Because I might derail. I, I don't exactly understand what happens. So I had to work very hard on my speaking. Right and my words and so forth. So I spent a fair bit of time as a young adult trying to improve all of that. Yeah. But, uh,
1: but no wonder you had difficulties with the essays then, if that's kind of an inbuilt. Stringing
0: sentences together, yeah. yeah. And yeah. also, look, I'm really... And then
1: having the confidence to string the sentence together. I mean, you probably could, but you were just...
0: I think the, the issue mind, was Part of the issue was also I'm a real perfectionist, so I I focus on detail a lot. So I needed to get every sentence right before going to the next. And I've I've caught myself doing that when I compose as well. I have to be careful because if I do that, I'm not going to get past the first bar. Right. So I just now I just when I'm composing, this is going back to writing music, I'll just kind of plonk as much as I can down without questioning it and then later think about this more critically and be more Refine detailed. It. Exactly. And that's how I write nowadays as well. Mm-hmm. Like to get through my PhD and my masters and PhD thesis I had to do that as well. Otherwise I'll finish in fifty years. Right yeah, so um, I have to balance being de- with my uh, propensity to be detailed as well as with you know the the effectiveness of looking at the big picture.
1: So what was your goal at that time? Was it to be uh, a performer, a composer, an academic? everything?
0: I had no idea. when I was <laughs> my in my undergraduate, I really had no idea, man. I was just lost. Um I mean, I'm a bit of a late bloomer in some ways to life. When I was at uni, I just wanted to do a degree. Right. I actually started doing theology. Wow. And I got kicked out. <laughs> I got kicked out after a year. Um, I don't ask why. That's in the past, right? <laughs> but um, I decided to do music after that because it was just my passion. I was, I was, my rationale at that time was do what you love to do yeah, but that, that's figure interesting. figure it out later.
1: But that's interesting that you, you did the theology first. You, you weren't necessarily planning on making music your career
0: at that no. point. Well, it's because uh, for my mother, it wasn't a career. It was just right? something you did for fun. It was something I did for fun. And then when she realized that I was going to do theology, uh, oh, even worse. You know? <laughs> music to theology? What's next? You know? no, she's totally changed it, of course. Very supportive, <laughs> but not back then.
1: Is there a particular moment where you felt you could make it your career?
0: Maybe in the last 10 years. It's just in the last <laughs> <cities>. <laughs> I'm not joking by very much. No, look, it was when I was doing my PhD. Right. I reckon. Look, I think it until I started my postgraduate, my masters. I was just lost, you know, so I was playing with salsa bands in Brisbane and, you know, touring and so forth, just having fun being a musician. But that's
1: being a musician and being paid for it, though.
0: Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, I was thinking, how sustainable is this? You know, it's not, I mean, leaving home at 6pm for a 7 o'clock sound check, playing at 10pm, playing until 2am, getting home at 4 or 5, right, and then perhaps doing some teaching during the day, as in, you know, instrumental teaching, uh, some rehearsals and, you know, hanging out with friends and then doing the same thing the next night, three or four times a week. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was like 23, 24, when I was doing that, that was okay. But, you know, could I see myself doing that at 30, 40? No. <laughs> so at some point, and also, you know, it was, it was my, uh, my lost youth days, which were a lot of fun, man. This is what my early mid-20s, I was living in Brisbane after I finished my undergraduate at Sydney University. Went over there and, um, look, I don't remember much of it, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a lot of fun. Uh, Got to hang out with a lot of great people and, you know, make some terrific music. I learnt a lot about various forms of Latin American music there. That's where I got into some jazz as well. And uh, so my tastes were quite eclectic, right? At some point, I realised, okay, let's get serious about things. Right, so that's when I decided to come back to Sydney and try for a postgraduate degree. So I, I got in and um, I started with Professor Ann Boyd and a few other people as well, but she was my main professor. That's when I started thinking, okay, yes, I, I think I can make composition my career. I've written a, a, a bunch of music and uh, was always moving between classical and Latin, a bit of jazz. I was doing a lot of arranging for the bands that I played in. So that was kind of my job as well. Was
1: that kind that. of arranging on the fly as well?
0: Yeah, I would say so. But, I mean, I was doing it properly, you know. Like, yeah, okay. Uh, I studied – I did a bit of jazz study up in, at Queensland Conservatorium, mm. which I failed. I never finished that degree, but, you know, uh, at least I learnt a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't get the piece of paper. I didn't get the piece of paper. Otherwise, I'd have a you know, diploma in jazz or something like that. Right. But um, I just didn't take it as seriously as I know I should have.
1: Well, I think you've made up for it ever since, though. The uh, next piece <laughs> of music, Daniel, is uh, well, a big one in, uh, in this repertoire, and that's a danzo numero dos from Arturo Marquez. Can you tell us about this one?
0: I love this piece. This is kind of like the signature piece played... By orchestras around the world of Latin American orchestral repertoire. I mean there's a handful of, well there's a lot of great Latin American orchestral works but this one takes the cake because it's so popular it's so beautifully crafted and the melodies and the rhythms are, um, are incredibly visceral and emotional. I've got several favourite recordings of this but it's hard to get past the Dudamel recording with the Simón Bolívar Symphony Orchestra in Venezuela so this is the recording that I've chosen for this.
1: Arturo Marquez's Danzón Número 2, the Simón Bolívar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela, conducted by Gustavo Dudamel. The choice of my guest in conversation today, composer and pianist Daniel Rojas. Well, Daniel, we've mentioned uh, Latin American music in sort of very broad terms uh, until now, and you've sort of got better pains to say it's such a, a broad thing with so many subgenres. Can we kind of try and unpick that and sort of summarize what we really mean by
0: Latin American music? By Latin American music, I mean an umbrella term for a bunch of different musical traditions, genres, styles, practiced in many countries throughout Latin America and the United States, and of course the diaspora around the world. So some of the most well-known ones, and by no means do they represent even a a median percentage of what's available, a tango, salsa, merengue, cumbia, bossa nova, samba, cueca Marinera and they're all kind of dancers right? Most of them are dancers yes mm. actually that's true. A lot of Latin American music is is meant to be danced mm. or to be performed communally. there is there's space of course for you know more individual sort of work but generally speaking at least in traditional terms, unless you're in the pastures on your own looking after your llamas or your sheep, most of it is actually very communal music. Which is I think very, quite, uh, quite revealing of the way that we like to interact socially throughout Latin America. We're very gregarious people. Mm. We love being around other people okay uh, So music gives us an excuse to do that. So tell me how these
1: genres appeared How did they evolve? Do they grow out of the Spanish and Portuguese immigrants to those areas or were they and they fused with the indigenous music? How, how did it, how did, where did it come from?
0: You ask amazing questions. I give lectures on this at the University of Sydney now. (laughs) So it's a big topic. Um, The genres that I'm particularly interested in with my own music, indigenous music from various cultures, particularly Peru and Mexico, or Central America, let's call it, those have naturally been created by uh, more autochthonous uh, communities over you know, how many thousands of years, you know, and many hundreds of years. And, of course, much of that, unfortunately, it doesn't exist much anymore because of, you know, changes to, to society and so forth, right? But it's still practiced, um, particularly by uh, communities that perhaps want to preserve some of their traditions. Uh, other genres are definitely a conflation of various migrational currents, as you've mentioned, you know, Portugal, Spain, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Central and uh, Eastern Europe as well. Oh, hugely. Absolutely. Yes, for example in my, my mother's case she's kind of Eastern European descendants as part of a family which is also mixed with indigenous and Spanish blood as well so it's a big mixture of things right it's quite quite fascinating really the the intercultural kind of interactions that have occurred over the last few hundred years so uh, say in the case of tango it's originally comes from the Havanera which is Cuban okay and the sailors brought it down to the eastern part of South America particularly Uruguay and Argentina. South of Brazil has similar sort of genres as well, right? And so from that, then you started um, the, the tango, found its way into the social settings, perhaps of some questionable sectors of society <laughs> and, you know, some so dance halls that perhaps are not necessarily uh, acceptable for families and certainly not so the middle class society. <laughs> Correct, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but of course, uh, so that, that begins, what, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. But at some point, Tango kind of finds its way into Hollywood and also to Paris, which Mm. was the cultural mecca of the time, okay? And um, in Paris, it begins to get a bit more refined. Uh, Hollywood makes it famous, brings it back to Argentina, and all of a sudden, oh, this is our music Ah. in Argentina, you know? It's been a little bit more kind of, um, it's given some status now, it's given some sort of national identity, but the music has also changed, has evolved, right?
1: From, from what was being played from in the late 19th century. Yeah. Correct, mm.
0: absolutely. It's evolved significantly. And then, of course, in the 30s and the 40s, you have the golden age of tango, where if you go down the main avenues of Buenos Aires, you'll see a big performance, so a tango uh, performance space with dancers, and the next block you have another two or three, and you just choose whichever artist you want. Like you could have 15, 20, 30, of these happening at any given night, right? Mm. And so you had options galore to listen to quality tango as well as to dance it as well. So that was the craze in those 20, 25 years of the golden age of tango.
1: Mm. Well, so that's tango in Argentina. Um, and you mentioned sort of you know other places like Cuba and Mexico. How, how have those cultures developed with their music?
0: Okay, so with Cuba, for example, you had a, a very significant wave of migration mm well, let's call it forced migration from West Africa. That settled various of the islands uh, in the Caribbean, and of course Cubans being so resilient, they incorporated that into their song as it changed and so forth. And even if they were prohibited from having their drums, they didn't care. They would just play with whatever they had at hand and made music with that and still chanted.
1: Yeah, so I suppose it's that West African sort of slave migration, for one of all, or forced migration, for a better way of putting it, because that introduces those those drums and things. I didn't don't think of that actually, because that's actually got African
0: origins. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so their way of interacting again, it's very social, okay, very or community-based music. So, so, first of all, you have everybody singing. You may have somebody who's doing the calls and somebody who's responding to those calls, or a group of that of people that are responding to those calls. But you also, with the percussion layers, you have somebody doing a layer of percussion another group of people playing another layer of percussion and then somebody else doing another layer. So, And they're all pushing and pulling interactively and they repeat and repeat. And so this music beautifully gets, in, gets you into a trance, right, You through the chanting and the various rhythmic layers mm. that push and pull. The
1: mm. next uh, piece of music, Daniel, is, uh, well, this is a bit of an interesting one. Uh, it's Gallo Ciego, but I believe that translates to something like blind rooster.
0: That's correct, Or blind chicken, blind rooster. It's a child's game, right? So the the young child needs to kind of has a blindfold and need to guess what it is that they're putting in front of them. Sometimes it's a person, other times they're toys or whatever it may be, and then they've got to go to the next thing and so forth. So they have to guess it just by touch. So this version uh, by Osvaldo Pugliese is my one of my favourite tango composers, arrangers, musicians. He's a pianist, in fact. He brings it into the existential realm. Okay, so it's it's a child's game, but makes us think, uh, ponder as adults what it's like to guess what life is like when we're sometimes walking blindfolded. All right, what are we doing? What the hell are? How are we supposed to deal with this challenge coming up? I have no idea what I'm doing, and uh, but I've got to do it anyway. So I'm going to take a guess. Right. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. So you'll hear in, in in this version of this composition that there's some very cheeky moments, and it does sound like you know a chicken pecking or whatever, right? Yeah. They're scratching. It's a very cute, cheeky, childish piece at times, but then other times it just opens itself up to some profound musical moments.
1: Osvaldo Pugliesi, with Gallo Ciego, or Blind Rooster, or Blind Chicken. The choice of my guest in conversation today, pianist and composer Daniel Rojas. He is performing with the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra to premiere his new work, Romanza y Danza de los Muertos, with fellow pianist Yerim Lee on the 14th and 15th of October at the concourse in Chatswood. Get along to willoughbysymphony.com.au for more information and for tickets. Daniel, I want to dig a little bit more into your composing and certainly your composing now. We've heard about how you were composing and improvising uh, as a kid. How does it really work now? Do you have to sit down at a blank piece of paper? Are you just making things up on the keyboard and then transcribing them still? How does it work?
0: Look, it's never the same thing every time. When I begin a piece of music, I feel utterly useless, Okay, like I'm I'm starting again, right? Um, And I, I thought I was alone on that until I started reading that, there are a lot of authors who write books that feel that way, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, yay, I'm not alone. And I don't have a formula, okay? But what I tend to do is start either playing on the piano, making things up as I go, and just experimenting, getting a feel for what this piece is like, but then going for a walk and thinking about the concept. It's almost like I'm curating the character or the sound world of, of the piece of music that I want to write, I also have to keep in mind who it's for, who's commissioning it, mm. where and when it's going to be performed, who are the performers.
1: Like who actually the people?
0: The people who perform, yes. So
1: you might write something suitable for a particular person?
0: I try, exactly. It's not always successful. Sometimes it's not pitched correctly, as in I don't pitch it correctly, but <laughs> I try. You know, I, can, I have them in mind yep. anyway, right? And also, like I said, the space, the the acoustic of the space and so forth. And then at some point when I start getting a clearer picture, and it can take days, it can take weeks, sometimes months, to get any form of clarity on this, I'll just start writing down some of my thoughts. So I'll record things uh, on my iPhone and play them back. And And if I find something, oh, this could be interesting, I'll kind of log it. Like I'll keep a track of it. Uh, I'll start writing some of those ideas on on the on the pages or on the manuscript on the piano. I have this big board which I got the idea from my, my teacher and undergraduate, Ross Edwards. who has this mega huge kind of like art board on his piano. And I thought that was so cool because you can stick things on sides of the page and everywhere, right, and then just have it Does a,
1: it look like he's trying to solve a crime with bits of – uh, Yeah, something like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or like an architect designing a building. Oh, yeah. which, and I love that. That's the other thing I wanted to do at high school. I wanted to be an architect. Okay. That was my other – Your I mother would probably have,
1: would have liked that.
0: She was hoping I would have done that. Right? <laughs> Architecture. Your uncle is a doctor. You know, remember your uncle, doctor? <laughs> yes, ma'am. but I'm not interested in medicine. <laughs> anyway, no, she's beautiful. And again, she's an amazing woman. Okay, so then I'll engage with the various ideas that I've written down, and, but I, w- I will try to avoid being linear. Okay, so my, my compositional approach is definitely non-linear. So I'll compose a bit here, then a bit somewhere else. Then everything blah, blah blah. Then I'll come back to each of those. I will throw a lot of that away, mm. right? So I come into the into a into a piece of music, into composing a piece of music with the expectation of throwing 50 percent of it out of of my original material out, right? Because I've got to get to the to what is the main point of this piece. I've got to get to the essence of what this piece is about. Otherwise, it can be disjointed, right? And we have to, and I want to write music that is cogent and coherent, mm. right? So that's an important value for me, right? And sometimes this is not easy, right? I've chucked entire pieces out or, you know, as in complete works, just throwing them out because I just didn't feel that they, they, they sat well and started again, right? Um, there are other times where, like this piece, in fact, the piece that I'm writing for the Willoughby Symphony or that I've written for the Willoughby Symphony, Romanza and Danza de los Muertos, I found this piece really difficult to write at first, I really did not know, I couldn't find what I wanted to do for the essence. And at some point I thought, hold on, what if I begin with the gesture called the by Osvaldo Pugliese, who we've just heard. So he does this, if you heard it in the piece, he does this terrific gesture where he'll play a cluster chord or a chord in about the middle of the piano with the left hand, and then he'll do a cluster at the bottom of the piano and sometimes glide up. All right, so it's called a shumba because it's onomatopoeic, shumba 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 shumba, shumba, shumba. right, and that's usually accompanied with the bass and so forth. So that's how I began the piece, and from there I started getting other ideas, and bit by bit the ideas started to form. And then it got to the point of okay, I think I get the character. The character is that it's kind of like scary film music. Also, fun, mm. kind of almost Disney fantasia in a, in a sense, right? It's also a little dark but cheeky, right? And it's also passionately, like stupidly romantic and over the top, but also classical and well thought. Okay, So it's kind of a a number of things that I managed to kind of work out of what I want the character to be. And that's, at some point, the piece then wrote itself. Mm. But it took me a long time to get to that point.
1: Picking up on that point of being inspired by, say, someone like Osvaldo Pugliese, you talked before about, you know, when you were a kid, you took Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, you transposed it up a fifth uh, or diminished fifth and added things and changed things. And then suddenly, by by the time you've done that, it's a different piece of music. Yes. Yes. Does that ever happen still now in your modern writing?
0: Uh, yes. Look, I don't do that so consciously anymore. Actually, I don't think I ever did that consciously. Even with that Moonlight Sonata rip off, it was completely unconscious. I only realised that later. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. But also, I don't want to call it a rip off. I swear, I, swear I want to call it an inspiration. Okay. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yes. Yes. I'm certainly inspired. I listen to a lot of music yeah. a lot of the time, a lot of times. Yeah. I'm always looking for new things to listen to, uh, and I, by music I mean classical music. Mm. I mean. Various songs of Latin American music. Uh, I'll try to find scores and play through those, or they're the full scores, or piano or chamber music scores, and just kind of get a feel for it by looking at what's been written. I actually asked for friends, like the other day I was hanging out with the Nexus uh, Quartet, the saxophone guys who are amazing. I work with them a fair bit. And we just finished a recording, and afterwards we were just chatting. And I asked them, hey man, give me some composers that you know of through the saxophone connection that you think I would never have heard of. And so I gave about three or four names, and then I looked them up, and they're amazing. You know, from you know a couple of British people, and a couple of other continental European composers. And so I started getting to their music and just seeing how that changes my musical thinking or helps it evolve. But what I do then is I store it at the back of my mind and somehow it gets processed and filtered somewhere in the deep subconscious realms, right? And at some point that may bring out some new material. Mm. Okay, as it begins to interact with other material in my mind.
1: I mean, I assume you've had that experience. You know, your lifespan, like mine, covers the right period of time where, you know, when you're a kid you're, and you're a young adult, you know, you have to go to a music store or a library to listen to something that you hadn't heard before. You have to find it. Whereas now, of course, with a Spotify subscription or YouTube, whatever you can, those composers that those guys gave you, you can go home and in five minutes you found them. On the that's internet. so true. You know, that's and the, the, the access that you've got now
0: perspicacious observation well said you know what i i am so glad that young composers these days have so much immediate access to this mm. right i mean it really is quite phenomenal and also for me now i can just look something up mm. right and, and it's there and you know occasionally you have to pay for something. that's okay good yeah. you know other times it's just for free on spotify youtube and it's or imslp and there's just so much to learn there now it's kind of information overload the only thing though that I'm glad about as a kid is that I'm glad that I had to fight to search. Yeah. All right. It, I mean, there is
1: something about the, the search. <laughs> that's
0: right. In in the gleaning, I found the, uh, let's call it a point of discovery, yeah. right, that I had to do some sacrificing or my parents had to do some sacrificing to procure some of these recordings of these scores, yeah. right?
1: You had to bargain that LP down to 10 That's right. or whatever it was. Exactly.
0: That's right. And so I had there was an element of sacrifice there that I treasure a lot more. And so I think as a kid, I valued that. And so I spent a lot of hours. Like one example is that my parents would go to their, to their religious service on Saturday morning, right? And maybe twice a month, I got suddenly sick on Saturday mornings. <laughs> and back then you could leave a nine-year-old at home on their own, right? <laughs> and so... Um, so I was sick for some reason. Of course, the moment they left, I was you know, out of bed onto the uh, the stereo. That
1: aspirin kicked in. Yeah, uh, totally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and put Tchaikovsky or whatever at full blast, right? No, no headphones anymore because yeah. no one's around. And I'd start conducting. I'd put my Tchaikovsky violin, uh, violin book on my music stand. Put all the teddy bears <laughs> around start conducting. Then I'd play the teddy
1: the- bears were the audience or the orchestra? They were the orchestra.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I put like no the eight seats that we had on the couches. <laughs> I put them all there, and you know, <laughs> you know, it's kids' fantasy, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I looked at the scores as well, and I'd follow along with the with with the um, with the sound, right. And, of course, at some point, you know, like it's about 12.30 now, i better pack up, leave everything order, and then go back to bed. My parents knew what I was doing. <laughs> they knew.
1: I was about to say, or oh, you had a, a neighbour uh, that may have dubbed you in as a result <laughs> of that, that loud music. <laughs> oh, Our next piece of music now. And, Daniel, this is one of your works. It's your first piano concerto and performed here by the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra and yourself. Tell us about this piece of music.
0: Yeah, sure. So this piece... Uh, I wrote when I was a master's student. That's a long time ago, right? In the two thousands, a much younger person and uh, <laughs> perhaps um, a little bit more uh, carefree, right? Uh-huh. Although I'm becoming more carefree now, which is great. Right? I'm kind of revisiting some of those days. And uh, so it was premiered by Zubin Kanga, who's a terrific pianist now living living in the UK, and the Sydney Youth Orchestra with David Banny conducting. Now, this is the last movement, the finale, right? It's called Alegrias, which is a a spanish genre but i didn't mean it in that way i meant it as in joyful all right joyfulness or happiness that's what alegrias means and it's um a piece in six eight three four hemiola type okay uh and basically it's a celebration of life and a very fun upbeat piece that is meant to kind of get the crowds roaring and you know and enjoying a really jolly good time
1: Simon Kenway conducting the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra for the finale, the Alegrias, from Daniel Rojas's Piano Concerto Number 1. Daniel Rojas was the pianist there, and, well, he is also my guest in conversation today. So, Daniel, what do you enjoy doing when you aren't uh, playing or composing? Dancing. Of course. I
0: love dancing.
1: Salsa? Tango? Yes, salsa,
0: tango. Actually, it, it's ballroom tango at the moment. Ballroom tango? Yes, I'm doing ballroom with one of the Arthur Murray companies. Right? (laughs) I'm loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it shows my age, right? I think once you pass 40, then all of a sudden you start looking towards your 50s and your 60s, right? (laughs) Yeah. But
1: it's such fun. I mean, it's such, I mean, it keeps you fit and it's great for for people of that that age group. But uh, if you could go back to that boy in Chile before he moves with his family to Australia and offer him a piece of advice, what would it be?
0: Oh. Oh, God, that's powerful. Dan, you're going to have a tough life? especially in some patches of life, you're going to be really, really rough. But see through it. See yourself through it. Persevere. Work hard and don't lose track of what your ultimate vision is. That's what I would say. Sounds awesome.
1: Well, Daniel, it's been absolutely awesome having you here today, but before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music uh, to introduce, and I almost feel like it fits in with the theme of your new composition.
0: Yes, yeah, so this is Saint-Saëns' Dance Macabre, Opus 40, a terrific piece by such a great French composer. Uh, this has influenced Romanza and Danza de los Muertos quite significantly because of the mood, the character that it creates of an afterlife, and it, you can almost feel it viscerally and it certainly conjures up all these images of what goes on in, in these kind of like sessions. So it uh, certainly has been something that has triggered my imagination to write this piece.
1: Well, it uh, certainly is a great way to go out of today's program. Daniel Rojas, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Sam. It's been a tremendous joy.
1: Pianist and composer Daniel Rojas. He's performing with the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra to premiere his new work, Romanza y Danza de los Muertos, along with fellow pianist Yerim Lee, on the 14th and 15th of October at the Concourse in Chatswood. Get along to willoughbysymphony.com.au for more information and for tickets. That's the programme for today. Listen to previous episodes at 2MBSFindMusicSydney.com slash In Conversation, and you can follow the show in your preferred podcast app. Just search 2MBS In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.